This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Money is central to so many people's lives. How to save it, how to use it, how to make it. And in today's environment, we're looking at how to trust it. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. The way we see finance and money as Americans comes from a place of peak privilege. We don't take the time to think about how having access to the global reserve currency as our home currency shapes the way we can use and spend money. We don't spend enough time thinking about money and just how political it is. And I don't mean who we should tax or by how much and what we should spend that money on. I mean what money is in the first place. And I wanted to get that conversation started. So today's episode is by no means exhaustive. We're going to come back to these topics and take a deep dive into each of them in that money series I've been talking about. But given the news, I didn't want to wait until that's ready to go before we begin to introduce these topics. And the person who immediately came to mind when I thought about doing this was my good friend Donna Riddell. Donna was the managing director of the World Economic Forum in Davos and was the first woman to chair a U.S. exchange, the Commodities Exchange. She's also a New York City-based advisor and investor focusing on fintech, blockchain, and emerging technologies. Donna also developed and teaches a course on blockchain, crypto, digital assets at Fordham Law School and the Fordham Gabelli Business School. She's also taught at the Wharton School at Penn and her alma mater, Columbia University. She has a JD from Fordham Law and an MBA from Columbia. Donna, welcome back to Politicology. It's great to see you. I'm thrilled to be back here, and it's always a pleasure to have good conversation with my friend Ron. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. We should say for people listening that uh, Donna and I like, like talking about this stuff, even when we're not recording a podcast. So we're gonna try. We're gonna try and keep it uh, 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 top level on lots of these topics, even though we'd love to go into lots of detail on all of them. But for time's sake, uh, we'll try and keep it timely and relevant. Um, the first up really is all of this debt limit news, Donna. The debt limit debate has has dominated headlines for the last few months. It's only going to get more intense as the deadline approaches. We should start with what it means when Janet Yellen says we're going to run out of money on June 1. So I think that there's two things that Janet Yellen is saying. Number one, you know, that there's going to not be money for the budget um, under the current uh, uh, requirements for what the debt is allowed to be as per Congress. She doesn't mean that there's not going to be money 
to to for us to pay one another because they seem to be printing that all the time. I mean, the, the physicalness of it, as well as we know from uh, during the COVID period, that more than 40% of uh, the money that is currently circulating in the United States was printed during that time. And we'll talk uh, in a few minutes about what is that, what are the implications of that. What would it mean if the U.S. defaults on our debt? What could it mean for individual people? You know, first of all, we have to step back. I mean, the U.S., the U.S. money, we'll say the dollar, okay? The dollar is considered to be the global reserve currency, meaning when, for example, oil is denominated, it's denominated in dollars. That creates a demand for dollars. And so it is, it is used in trading um, and in, as a world reserve currency. That creates a very powerful position for the U.S., as well as a dependency on the U.S. economy and to other countries looking here for how our monetary policies are organized, implemented, um, and, and throughout throughout the throughout the country, which because it has so many implications uh, around the world. Yeah, I think it's it's smart to take a step back here and to go a little bit further. I think most people will know that there was a time when the dollar was backed by gold, but that changed in the early 70s when uh, the Bretton Woods system ended. Can you talk a little bit about how about that shift and the role that trust plays in the monetary system now? So, I mean, if you look back over history, long history, you will see that all kinds of societies use different things as money. They use shells, um, they use stones. They, um, it wasn't until the uh, gold has always uh, had a place um, for the last at least uh, 2,000 years in people's um, hearts as something that is valuable and retains value. And so it wasn't until around the Renaissance that money was starting to be used, physical money, uh, the florin, which was a, a gold coin, was used in Florence, uh, hence florin. Um, and also you had the bankers um, coming, to, coming to the fore then, um, and what they came up with something that we take for granted, which is I can deposit my money, let's say my gold florins, in Florence, and there's another set of books in Milan or in Venice, which was a big trading area, that would allow me to take out my money in Venice. Now, that was revolutionary. We think of that as nothing big deal. We don't even think of it in terms of taking out our money. We take our, our, our debit card and we walk around the world and go tap, tap, tap. That was a really big deal. Now, of course, this was predicated on trust because I gave the banker my money, they held my money, and I would take it out in another country, in another city, or at another time from the institution. And of course, then bankers started to realize that once they had the money there, they could do something with the money, like lend it to other people, the people that wanted to import or or buy that flower or those those other goods that were coming spices or other things from all over the world hence you had the you, you had the beginnings of what people called banking because that's where people take in money and they also lend money and hopefully the differences between the the the, the uh, prices that they charge to lend the money and the prices that they pay to have the money are enough to keep them in business that's a little simplistic but i think it gets the idea no, I think it's it's good background, um, and it it gives us a foundation for 
where we are now, which is a fractional reserve system of banking. So, you know, when we were talking about this episode and I said, we got to talk about what money is in the first place, you put it so succinctly and you said, well, now money is trust. That's what it is. So how exactly does the Federal Reserve control money supplies and what does it mean when trust in the money um, begins to erode? Well, I mean, I think that just from from any simplistic, you know, kind of baseline, because we don't have to go too deep in it, there's some money supply when they want more money, they issue more money, and it can be through borrowing or lending with the, with the with their reserve banks. And if they want to do the opposite, they can they just lend less or they raise interest rates um, from from which banks would borrow from them. Um, so they can up, reduce or or increase the supply, the velocity of money that is in circulation. Most people, they don't really think about whether the Fed is moving faster or slower in terms of velocity. They see the manifestations of that in interest charge. Uh, Their mortgage may go up um, as interest rates have been going up in the last year or so. People may have noticed that uh, that they're floating mortgages. They're paying more on a monthly basis. If they have credit card debt, they will be noticing that that rate is higher than it was a year ago. And these are all factors that come into people's lives. Now, if you add on top of that, some of the other things that are happening in the economy, for example, that prices are going up. If prices are going up and your monthly payment of interest is going up, all of a sudden you need to think about, wow, the amount of money that I was making per month needs to stretch a little further because my grocery bills are more every month and my interest payments on my mortgage are more every month. And so people start to feel it in their pocketbook. And then when you couple that with some um, some kind of like little earthquakes or little tremors that start happening in the financial system where people see that banks um, are worried about liquidity um, and the Fed and other banks had to step in to help provide it, trust becomes a little more fragile. And whereas people didn't take for, they used to take for granted, you know, just in the, in the recent past, that their money was in the bank and it was safe, um, people now are a little bit more circumspect about that and worried about, you know, should they leave it there? Shouldn't they leave it there? What does it mean? Um, how does it impact my life? And what would it mean if I had too much money at the bank um, for my business and they, the insurance that's on there didn't cover it? This is really important. So essentially, the Federal Reserve controls how much money is out there floating around in the world, right? And they do that by the mechanisms you just described. And over the Last several years, a couple of years, I think you mentioned at the top it was forty percent of the money that's circulating right now. I think so. I've is heard it? I've heard it's around that. Yeah, it has been created in the last uh, well since COVID, right? Since twenty twenty. When and now the Fed's trying to rein a lot of that money circulating back in because of inflation, and that's we've now seen some some tremors, some 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 problems, some shocks. Most of the reserves that central banks in other countries hold is in dollars, and they also hold a lot of U.S. treasuries. How does that shape the way the federal government can spend money, and 
how does that dovetail with our conversation about trust? Well, I mean, I, I think that other countries holding it creates, of course, as we said, value for the dollar, and it keeps it as a reserve currency. And as you already tied the, the thread through, um, many, many, many countries, and even the United States before Brenton Woods, there was reserves were you know in gold. That doesn't mean that countries don't have gold, and there's been a tendency and a movement at the um, uh, recently, maybe in the last year or two, for more uh, uh, reserves to be placed in gold in the central banks in various countries. So I think that's important. But as everybody knows, all of these things, whether it's gold or treasury bills, all are all, all are predicated in trust in the system. And as we see, um, even just in the names that we mentioned, there are lots of um, there are lots of centralized entities with many kinds of of those kinds of entities underneath them that they also control and influence. So it gets more and more um, uh, like a the tippy top is the Fed. If you had a little pyramid, and then going down it are are many different banks and entities that deal in money, dollar transmission, payment. Etc. That people have to have trust in. Um, you have tr- you trust that uh, that if I send you Venmo and you get it in your wallet, that it's good money. And people trust that if they send uh, their family money through MoneyGram or other places like that, um, that it will be good money on the other end. Not, albeit that they take a, a lot of uh, rent from you as rent seekers along that way. Going back to the debt ceiling argument, there are going to be a lot of arguments about whether the McCarthy bill that just passed the House uh, approaches limiting the debt well. Uh, but about 60% of the American public thinks the government spends too much money. The Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget has been polling. They show that uh, three quarters of Americans think we should worry about the debt. Now, That polling gets more complicated when you ask them, well, what should we spend less on? Because nobody really wants to give up things they already have. But why does the size of the federal debt matter? How do you think about this? And how do you think about the partisan arguments on either side? Oh, this is probably above my pay grade. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Look, I'm not a proponent of debt um, because debt comes with, 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 uh, with an interest obligation. You can't just borrow money continuously without paying interest, which means that more and more of our our tax dollars and more and more percentage of the overall budget has to go to pay interest from the money that the government borrows. So at a certain point, um, especially as interest rates go up, we have to pay more and more for the privilege of borrowing money from the world, from our citizens and others. And so what do we rely on in order to pay off that debt, for the most part, we rely on taxation and you know a, a small other ways in which the government uh, takes in money from whatever kinds of services that they might provide or sales that they provide to other countries and entities around the world. So it's it's no different than if you run a business um, and people have uh, you know criticized some of the crypto companies that they manufacture coins out of nowhere and in some senses. You know, the governments, not only ours, manufacture coins out of nowhere as well. Yeah. So I want to make sure we introduce um, Bitcoin at some point as trustless because we've been having this nice conversation about trust 
uh, and I'd like to at least touch on it and and talk about you know where how it was born out of 2008 and attempts to solve this trust problem. Um, but let's let well, let's I say think that. Uh, yeah. But one it. of the ways that we can lead into that or start to develop a thread that you can pull on later is we talked just uh, just a few minutes ago about inflation and the ability of the government governments to be able to print more money, and that um, the only limitations are, you know, in most countries, some legislative process, but that ultimately, you know, gets, gets, gets voted on, and let's just say they don't increase it as much as they want to do, but there's some incremental increases. Well, in Bitcoin, there are no more increases. I mean, it, it is, has a set amount of Bitcoin that are allowed, um, and it would be incredibly difficult, exceedingly difficult, to be able to change that, uh, that amount. And the rationale was that Satoshi, um, whoever he, she um, is, um, or they, or whatever, um, saw this problem in already in 2008 and said, in order to create trust in money, there needs to be limits of the amount of money that can be placed in circulation. Otherwise, the money can depreciate by definition. If I am allowed you know, 21 million today, which is how many Bitcoins are allowed. And all of a sudden I say, oops, well, that was a mistake. Let's just put that, add an extra zero on that. I've, I've depreciated, I've depreciated my asset. Um, it would kind of be similar in some senses to if we knew what the total amount of the world gold supply was and people priced gold on that basis. And then all of a sudden they found a whole new gigantic vein of gold that was going to triple the amount of gold that existed, it'd be like, oh, wow, well, does that impact the price? How quickly will that be sold? How quickly will it be mined? All of a sudden, you have these other factors that come into consideration. So I think that, yeah, I'll leave it there for you to continue. We we should we should note for some people who, who hear Bitcoin and think that that is all, you know, the the entire world of crypto um, or cryptocurrencies. Uh, can we can we just uh, spend a minute and clarify that Bitcoin does not equal crypto? Crypto does not equal Bitcoin because people use them synonymously sometimes, and there really aren't. Yeah, that is that. You don't need much more clarification than that. Bitcoin is a unique asset. Um, whether you whether you like it or you don't like it is another story. But it is completely unique. Um, in the sense that uh, the way the way that it is produced, the thought patterns that went behind it, the fact that there's no known central entity that controls it, or some some person that's you know flexing their muscles saying I'm I'm the creator, I'm the I'm the big guy. Um, so I think that that's really really important. Um, the the thought that went into the inflation aspects of it, the security around it, um, and and the trustless element in which you don't need to trust putting your Bitcoins with other people and it's produced without having to pay other people to produce it for you and pay them, you know, uh, anecdotally because they mine them and they pay them for transaction fees. But that's all part of the blockchain and it rests on a blockchain. Underpinning it is a blockchain. 
And Bitcoin solved a couple of really important problems um, that were about, I mean, there was attempts at digital money before that, but there was never a way to verify that you couldn't spend your money twice. Um, and Bitcoin we solved that, that. double spend yeah, problem. Double spend problem, and right. it solved it solved that. And it also uh, solved the uh, Brigadier General's problem, which is a mathematical problem that existed for centuries. In by having the fifty one percent attack vector, um, it did it did that as well. So it's it's so smart um, in the in the approach, and 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 in a sense, it's so elegant because of the simplicity. Yeah, so I'm I'm glad we touched on this. We'll certainly come back to it in a future episode. But um, since we're talking about money and trust, uh, and and you mentioned the blockchain, we should just note for people that in the very first block of this chain of blocks, the white paper was published in 2008. The first block was published in 2009, and in that block, embedded in the block, is the front page of the New York Times that day, which was Financial Times about uh, the 2008. Yeah, and it right? talks about the, that it was a second bank bailout, and it is the chancellor of the Exchequer in England that is quoted in, and is that is embedded in in block. Okay, so back to dollars. Um, I want to talk about the BRICS countries for a moment. Over the last year, the BRICS nations, the BRICS countries are Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And over the last year, they've been developing a currency they can use for reserves that is backed by a hard asset like gold or oil uh, and to use in international trade rather than dollars. Nearly 80% of international trade is done in dollars. 60% of reserves are held in U.S. dollars. These discussions really kicked off in the wake of U.S. sanctions against Russia, most notably freezing nearly half of Russia's foreign currency reserves and booting Russia from SWIFT, which is the interbank messaging service that's used for international payments. That was really uh, enabled by the dollar being the dominance of the dollar, by the dollar being the reserve currency. And we had never used sanctions like this in part to preserve the dollar as the dominant reserve currency because of trust, right? Because you want to be able to trust that uh, that the dollar is essentially neutral, that your money is going to be good uh, whenever, whenever you need it. What would a decline in the importance of the dollar mean for the U.S. economy and for real people? Um. That's more an economic person, a trade, a trade economic person, and I'm sure you'll have somebody that could come and do that. But psychologically, I'll just talk psychologically as opposed to the the real. Um, it would be it would be devastating, um, and especially especially if you think about it in terms of oil. I mean, oil, whether we like it or we don't like it, um, our economies are are really dominated by uh, oil. You need oil or some version of it to be able to power to power up. Um, and so a, a, an agreement between the countries that you just mentioned, which might shift the, the underpinning of oil to another, to another currency, would have a very, very big impact. There have been conversations, not only around this in terms of where, you know, what would be the underlying uh, assets or, 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 or reserves but the actual manifestation of the currency, and there is increasingly conversations about the Chinese central bank digital currency. Um, and we're all used to digital assets. In the beginning, we talked about the fact that 
We go around the world and go tap, tap, tap. Um, but uh, a central bank digital currency is different in many, many ways than the fact that my bank gets debited by using a credit card um, around around the world, a debit card around the world. Um, and what what are what are people worried about? Especially, let's just talk about the Chinese, the Chinese dig, a, a central bank digital currency. Let's do that in a moment. But first, let's let's tell people what the difference is between the dollars they think are digital in their bank account now and a central bank digital currency. How is it? How are those two things different? Well, it depends on how they would be issued. But um, the dollars that are in your account now are. The, though that you might think they're digital and they they work um, for you in machines and on 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 computers without without any paper. Uh, yeah, without any paper they're not they're not issued on any kind of a ledger on a blockchain and um issues that come about uh by doing it on a blockchain are do do how how do we store it do you do you, is this token is this Digital asset, um, it, can it can it, essentially can, cryptocurrency issued by the yeah, government? can can right? it can it does it does it have the ability? Can can the government track it and know where I spent money on? Um, and the answer is the answer is yes. I mean, you can program it to be able to do that, or you could program it not to be able. But we know from history, once something can be programmable, it's a slippery slope. To will it be programmable? Now we've seen, we've seen, and I don't know if this is the right time now to discuss it, but we've seen in the tests in China, and albeit they have a completely different society and aims than 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 our country um, and values, um, they have issued uh, test uh, CBDCs to their population, a, a limited supply, and they will say these CBDCs are valid for two weeks. Then they can only be used on transportation, and they track the transportation. Um, or these ones here can only be used on food purchases. So that might not be so horrible, right? Now, but what if if what if I was a protester um, and I used my money to just take the Canadian situation that happened during COVID? And I sent some of my CBDCs to my friends in Canada, and then they froze my wallet because I was helping a protester. Um, or if I was uh, a person that wanted to get a certain kind of service provided, maybe that would be an abortion, maybe it would be some kind of marijuana or other things that people might not want me to have or think it's not a good idea for me to have, or if I spoke out on something or wrote an article, maybe they could freeze my money. So I think that that the states and people that are entering now a little bit more aggressively into this conversation are aware of what potentially could happen to something that might be set started as a really good idea or a timely one 
but could transmute into something that was more directly um, inhibiting our privacy. I think that's a good primer on CBDCs, and they'll probably be toward the top of the list of things we'll need to talk about in the near future because the Biden administration seems to be encouraging a uh, a project at the Treasury and the Fed uh, to develop a CBDC for the United States. There may also be some linkage between the crackdown on crypto um, and the broader crypto, as well as even uh, Bitcoin in terms of proposed uh, rules, regulations, banking, etc., that um, is somewhat um, somewhat uh, uh, an, an echo of what happened in China. In China, slowly, slowly, they um, made various kinds of cryptocurrencies. They made crypto uh, mining, um, and then finally all kinds of cryptocurrencies um, against the law as, as the CBDC became more front and center. Um, and hopefully you will circle to why the ability to use something like Bitcoin and maybe talk about the, some of the panels that we just recently saw at the Bitcoin policy were so, so um, like heart-wrenching and so, so powerful. powerful. Yeah. Uh, first, I think it's interesting. So, so essentially, you see some parallels between the way China has uh, gone about rolling out its own CBDC in terms of the actions the government took in advance and what seems to be happening now at the regulatory level in the United States. Yeah. And this on the, um, yeah, cause you see, uh, some push to, as, as Dick Carter has written about and others now, what they're calling choke point 2.0 to really clamp down even on the most law abiding regulatory, you know, uh, abiding uh, citizens, compliant companies um, to really kind of push this into the corner. I've noticed this too. And um, last week uh, on the show, I mentioned as a, as a sort of look ahead story, this 30% tax on cryptocurrency mining that the uh, Biden administration put in the budget proposal. Did you catch I this? I did see that. Yes. And I sort of, I sort of uh, ex- explained a couple of things about how misguided this is. But we're having this conversation in the context of a debt ceiling fight over whether or not to rein in or allow um, continued borrowing and spending uh, and expanding the the national debt. In the last week, legislators in Florida and North Carolina have moved uh, bans on central bank digital currencies in their states by huge bipartisan margins. Florida was an outright ban that passed the House 116 to 1 and the Senate 34 to 5. The North Carolina bill passed the House unanimously and will now head to their Senate. Can you talk about um, why... The U.S. is considering one. Why you think they might be considering one, and what the arguments um, for them might be—the ones that we might hear. I think 
I think it's important, you know, for me, it's important to emphasize the dangers and these the, the centralized control that we're then giving the government to surveil ordinary people. Um, but I, I think I have a pretty good handle on the arguments that they're going to make in favor of one when we get to that fight. I want to talk about those a little bit. Um, what is this? What are these? What do these bills signal to you at the state level? And what do you think we're going to hear from uh, proponents of CBDCs, whether at the administration, at the Treasury, at the Fed? What are they going to say when um, when they do move forward with something like this? Well, I think you saw the harbinger of some of this. I want to say it was about three plus years ago. There was a short um, video. And it was called Currency Wars. It, oh. it was, do you remember this? It was out of, it, it was out yeah. of, I want to say Harvard. Um, it might have been, was. Uh, it was a center there. I forget exactly, but you could just yeah. Google Currency Wars Harvard. And yeah. uh, ironically, Gensler was, there was a pretend, it was a pretend cabinet meeting. But it was called Gary was, Gensler, chairman. He of was the, the Fed. He no, he was the Treasury. He was the Treasury. Treasury. Larry Summers yeah. was there as something. There were all the people that were there, and they start talking about a war. And as the audience, especially four years ago, they, you're saying, "Oh, war! Wow!" Um, and um, in fact, the war is a currency war, and the U.S. is losing it. Um, so what I think is happening is partially what we would call competition. Uh, you know, there is competition, there is technology, all of these things are coming to the fore. Other countries, I think they're, they're you know, like something like a, a hundred, uh, almost a hundred countries at least that have started to work on some kind of central bank digital currency. Uh, Bermuda has had the sand dollar going for a while. Um, and, you know, so I think it is, uh, other people are doing it, so we should we should also at least have the technology ready. Now, um, the technology is coming out of a combination of private and and public partnerships, uh, many uh, through MIT um, tech companies. Uh, the Boston Fed is pretty much leading the charge here on behalf of the rest of the Fed, um, and they have, of course, many policy considerations that they can't answer, but will come up before. Uh, the probably the the legislature when it would fully authorize a CBDC. So I do think that you see the states weighing in here in advance um, as to what their constituency thinks or they think is a good, bad, or reasonable approach, and that will obviously be felt in Washington because. If Florida decides one way, one might probably think that the the people that are in Washington that are representing Florida will, you know, echo m- much of the same the same opinions. The same thing with Texas and, and otherwise. The interesting thing will be if this divides on a on a blue red uh, dr um, uh, basis. But I do think that many, many, many people um, that not on a political basis, but having seen what happened to privacy with many of the social media, they have taken a new look at privacy and they may come with opinions 
on CBDCs and privacy in ways that they might not have done five or seven years ago. Yeah, I, I, I think that's totally right. And I was, I was surprised and actually very encouraged when I saw the, the, the vote tallies for both of these bills because they were just so overwhelmingly, I mean, one was unanimous, one was nearly unanimous. That signals to me that, that hopefully this doesn't devolve into a, into a, uh, into a partisan fight, but rather, you know, um, an informed and not yet informed um, sort of constituency around them. So, all right, let's back up and let's just survey what we've talked about here so far, because I want to make sure people are following along. Um, not only are we about to enter a big, nasty, extraordinarily consequential fight about the debt ceiling, but it really does matter. And it's, it's not just as simple as, well, this is money we've already spent and so we have to pay the bills. Um, that is true. This is money we've already spent and we have to pay the bills. Failing to pay the bills um, would would result in um, pretty severe consequences for the U.S. economy, our reputation among the people who borrow money from us, or that we borrow money from, I should say, around the world, other other sovereign banks. But that also the nature of our money is um, is changing, uh, and that we're we're in this new digital era where data is money, and we're trying to figure out if America is the leader of the free world. How do we reserve? How do we retain our reserve status? How do we re- retain the reserve status of the dollar and also compete against countries that are developing centralized government issued money that is? Um, able to be manipulated faster and used for surveillance purposes uh, and even retaliation against the people who hold it. Um, These are really big questions um, and really big problems to solve. And while it might sound really complicated, um, I think it's important that people start to pay attention to this and start start to educate themselves about what these tools are. And this is why I've said in the past, um, if you've sort of <laughs> had your head in the sand about cryptocurrency or take one of the easy ways out of the conversation and, uh, and call it all fooey and that it's going to go away, it's not going away. Um, and it has, uh, it has really big implications. I just wonder how you talk to, uh, people about these topics, how you talk to your students about them, especially when they come in with not a lot of knowledge about the the state of money and uh, and the way it's changing. So the first class includes what is money, um, and and so that kind of, that theme go, goes through the class. Um, depending, of course, if it's a law class or a business class, they even the business classes are are rooted in regulation. You know the the regulatory business issues. So you know what is money, and in the end. Uh, we come up with money's trust. So it doesn't really matter whether it's a dollar bill or a pound or 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 a yeah. Bitcoin. It's based on trust. Um, now, the underpinnings of those things are very different. So, you know, what is money? And when we get to each one of the different topics, uh, again, depending on whether it's the legal or the business focus, um, we look at what are what are the issues. And of course, under CBDCs, privacy, in, is is a key one, um, whether it is a um, 
as a retail um, or a institutional uh, CBDC. We look at what are what are also comparing it, and there's been a lot of really fantastic writings um, uh, comparing it to stable coins and why you, people might prefer stable coins that are privately issued uh, with the proper reserves than a CBDC um, and the arguments for both of those and and you know the legal justifications um, you know and what would be the regula- regulations around stable coins or other kinds of of, of digital assets like that. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't really talk about stable coins, but that's a, we, should we tell people what those are briefly? Sure. What a stable um, coin so is. stable coins uh, are, are digital assets um, that are, well, just there are a couple of different kinds, but the increasingly popular and the increasingly important one um, are, are, are backed by, are backed by, um, by USD, and um, and treasuries. Um, it could be in other countries backed by their a fiat currency and their treasuries or a similar kinds of, of, of federally issued federally issued um, backings. Those are usually held in custody by banks um, or big institutions that are enabled to be able to custody dollars and and treasuries. And then the institution, like a circle, for example, issues a a um, a stablecoin. That is supposed to stay pegged to a dollar in this instance, and then um, that is used in defi- decentralized finance protocols, and it could be sent around the world. So, um, if Ron is my family and I work in the United States, and I send him money back to the country that um, he needs additional dollars uh, for um, stable coins, I can send him stable coins, and he get them for virtually no expense um, in his wallet. And then might be able to change those into into his currency, or be able to use them in some ways to purchase goods. Um, this is very very popular. Uh, stable coins in countries like um, in uh, South um, and Latin America, uh, particularly countries like Venezuela or Argentina, where the currency is declining very rapidly. The same thing if people can get them in countries like um, Lebanon that is in a banking crisis. And that way you have something that's pegged um, to a dollar or to, let's say, the euro, and you're able to actually move it across borders in ways that you could acquire goods and services that you might not be able to acquire with your own currency. Yeah, I think uh, I think we should start to wind up here. Um, I know that, you know, I want to talk talk about how the way we see finance and money as Americans is from a, 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 the peak of privilege when it comes to um, access to the global reserve currency as our, as our home currency, essentially. And, and the perspective about money and how it works, especially access to dollars in developing countries by people who are underserved by their own financial regimes in their own countries is, is vastly different. Um, from ours. And I think we'll save that for a future episode and maybe we'll get Alex Gladstein to come on and talk about. um, Oh, that would be fantastic. Yeah. Alex Gladstein runs the Human Rights Foundation. And Donna and I were recently at a a private conference where he presented some really powerful stories of uh, people from developing countries who rely on these uh, alternative assets, mainly Bitcoin, to 
um, to, to function, to avoid uh, persecution. Uh, one of them, I, I, don't, I, want, I won't give it away right now, but has saved tens of thousands of human lives uh, who were being ransomed um, thanks to her ability to use these tools and, uh, and, and get around the, the um, what should we call it, the friction of legacy services like MoneyGram and Western Union, which you know take like thirty percent of whatever the payment is, and are very very slow. Uh, so I just want to bookmark these things. Is there anything else? Um, if people want to sort of know what's on the horizon, what topics and um, and what areas should we cover in this upcoming series? Money is central to so many people's lives how to save it, how to use it, how to make it. Um, and and in today's environment, again, we're looking at how to trust it. It's a really important development that's reoccurring again. And it happens, unfortunately, almost every decade. And so, you know, a new, another another generation of, of people are facing this again. There's also nothing more political than money in the first place, right? <laughs> We'll leave that for another episode. Donna, but before I let you go, uh, where can everybody find you on the internet? Are you still on Twitter? Yeah, I still am on Twitter, Donna Riddell. Not any code names. You can find me there. Um, you know, maybe in the summer I'll have some more time between classes to tweet a little more. But there's always some really fantastic people to follow in this in this arena. Um, and maybe in the show notes, Ron will list a couple of them. Yep, absolutely. Okay, fantastic. Okay, until next time. Thanks a lot. Thanks, friend. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.